Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest scientific breakthroughs. Diana. Yes, this week psychologists working at the University of Berkeley have found that jet lag affects the brain's ability to retain flat facts long after returning to a more regular schedule. The researchers came to this conclusion after they had subjected a group of female Syrian hamsters to six-hour shifts in their circadian rhythms, which is the same as flying London to New York. They applied quite a tough regime to these hamsters, exposing them to this artificial jet lag twice a week for four weeks. They also kept a control group of hamsters whose schedules remained unchanged. Now, Lance Kriegsfeld and his colleagues then put both sets of hamsters through tests which measured their ability to learn and remember simple tasks, such as locating hidden food. Now, as expected, the jet-lagged hamsters didn't perform as well as the control group. But what was surprising is that the jet-lagged ones continued to perform poorly even a month after they returned to normal. So that proves that it's not just being tired there's something fundamental with memory going yes, on. Yes, there's actually something going on in the brain. And they found that the jet-lagged hamsters only had half the usual number of new neurons in the hippocampus area of the brain, which is really important for memory and learning. Um, it's already known that frequent flyer humans and rotating uh, night shift workers can suffer problems with their memory. It's the shifts that rotate yeah, rather than yeah. the workers, yeah. <laughs> um, round and round and round, that would cause problems, wouldn't it? But what this study implies is that those problems could persist even after they've settled into a more regular working pattern but at least we know that this is true for hamsters anyway but you can read more about that in the journal plus one diana thank you your boyfriend is a pilot so can this be used to explain why he frequently forgets to bring you classy jewelry and all those wonderful gifts from exotic places that he flies to like luton <laughs> that would be a very good excuse wouldn't it he's um he's only short haul though so i don't know i don't know if he'd get away with that Damn, I bet he's saying. Thank you. <laughs> well, also this week, scientists have come up with a way to work out how old someone is based on a blood sample. Now, previously, although genetic fingerprinting and other genetic techniques have made big leaps forward, largely thanks to the technique of genetic fingerprinting, for instance, we now know if you take a blood sample from somebody or you find a blood sample at a crime scene, whether someone has blue eyes or brown eyes, what colour hair they're likely to have, uh, whether they're, they're male or female, whether they have a tendency to male pattern baldness, for example, what their stature's likely to be like, you can predict all of those things from the genes but the one thing you couldn't tell up until now was, well, how old is the person whose blood we've found? Because obviously ageing has an effect on all of those things. And now scientists have come up with a way that they say could get round this. This is Manfred Kayser. He's a researcher from the Erasmus Medical Centre in Rotterdam. And in the journal Current Biology this week, he and his colleagues have come up with a way to pinpoint, using just five nanograms of DNA, so a tiny amount, just a blood speck, basically, how old plus or minus nine years, a person is who left that blood sample behind. They did it by taking 195 healthy Dutch volunteers. These are individuals who were aged from just a few weeks old to more than 80 years old. And they studied white blood cells in the blood because white blood cells, and specifically T cells, these are the white blood cells that fight off infections, these cells make inside themselves little tiny circles of DNA which they produce when the cells rearrange their DNA in order to fight off infections. But because as we get older, 
the part of the body called the thymus that makes T-cells gets smaller, you make fewer T-cells as you get older, and therefore you have fewer of these cells making fewer of these little tiny circles of DNA. Those circles are actually called the SJ treks, and we call them that because it's actually short for signal joint TCR excision circles, which is what these DNA pieces are. But what they do is to quantify how many of these little circles of DNA there are, and by plotting them on a graph they could see that there is a linear decline with age in the numbers of these little DNA circles. And what they do is to take a gene which is present in only one single copy in a cell and use that to standardise how much DNA is there and then compare it with the number of these DNA circles and they can predict the age of a person based on this piece of blood. And they say that although that's interesting and obviously it could be applied in things like criminal circumstances to work out the ages of victims or work out the ages of perpetrators, you could also use it in animals as well because animals also make T-cells. They also make these little circles of DNA called uh, the SJ Trek DNA. And so you could use it for ecological studies. When you go and get blood samples from animals, you could work out how old they are and this will inform our understanding of population dynamics. So will different animals age like this at different rates? Well, obviously we'd, we'd need to check um, exactly how, what, what sort of absolute numbers there are, but the point is you could do it in a standardised way because the curve that they draw on their graph is a straight line and this suggests that you ought to be able to say, right, if we know basically where along a curve someone is, it relates to this far along their lifespan, you could probably apply the same thing to the animal. Brilliant. Now, scientists have managed to produce what's called a Bose-Einstein condensate of photons, so of light. Normally, if you call a gas or something similar of atoms, um, they keep existing in a variety of different energies, even if you get all the way down to absolute zero. But two scientists, Einstein and another scientist called Bose, predicted that if you call certain types of atoms enough, they all start to condense into a single state, so all with exactly the same energy and exactly the same other properties, essentially behaving as one giant atom, and this is essentially a new state of matter. It was predicted in 1938, but it wasn't achieved until 1995 when Eric Cornell and Carl Wieman um, called a very low-pressure rubidium gas to about 170 billionths of a degree above absolute zero. So 170 billionths of a degree above the coldest temperature you can possibly get. And this formed a Bose-Einstein condensate, and they got a Nobel Prize for it just two years later. Now, if you used light, in theory, the same thing could happen, but at much higher temperatures. The problem is it's really hard to confine light. You've got a photon, it's moving at the speed of light, it's bouncing off the sides billions and billions of times every second. But if you cool it down... And it absorbs. And it's really difficult, so you can't keep it down, so it can't cool down. Um, now, Jan Clares and colleagues um, have got around this problem. Um, they've trapped photons with two curved mirrors, which are very, very, very close together, so only like three and a half wavelengths apart. Um, this means that the photons can only exist in certain wavelengths. And the changes, the energy differences between these wavelengths aren't any which can be absorbed by the walls. So it's almost impossible for these photons to get absorbed. So it just bounces backwards and forwards? For a really long, relatively long time. And um, they put some dye molecules in there, so occasionally the light interacts with the dye molecules and picks up the similar temp temperature to the dye molecules. So the differences between the photons get smaller and smaller and smaller down until the temperature which the dye molecules are at. Um, and this actually works at room temperature, which is a really incredible thing. But what can you do with it, and what does it prove? First of all, it's a load of interesting physics, and lots of physicists will be saying, hey, lots of things to play with. But because all the photons will be exactly identical, you'll be able to produce very, very 
coherent, very, very narrow wavelength light. So essentially light laser light, but not laser light. And there are some frequencies which is really, really hard to make lasers at. So, and the high ultraviolet, X-rays. X-rays, gamma rays, for um, example. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you can actually get the two things close enough for gamma rays, but certainly up in the X-rays, you could build it by using these two mirrors and this mechanism, which opens up all sorts of lasers which we just can't make at the moment. What could you do with an X-ray laser? The X-rays well, are pretty penetrating already, so what, what could you do with that? It would be presumably very, very powerful. Um, probably, it would only be powerful if you put enough energy into it. So, I mean, odds are you're not going to build one which is going to be able to knock down houses. The real thing is being able to measure things, because the shorter the wavelength, the more accurately you can measure distances. So you could probably take pictures of atoms. I mean, actually, with light, you could take pictures of atoms. You could um, make more smaller computer chips and things like that. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Fascinating stuff. Now, Wednesday, December the 1st, is going to be World AIDS Day. And 2011 actually marks the 30th anniversary of the discovery of HIV, the agent that causes AIDS. So it's very timely that this week scientists have announced that they have solved one of the big outstanding questions that surrounds HIV infection, which is why the virus is so damaging to the immune system. Professor Warner Green is the director of the Gladstone Institute of Virology and Immunology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's with us now. Warner, hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. First, can you give us a brief potted history of what actually happens during HIV infection? In other words, how does the virus get into cells and what's its life cycle? Well, good evening, Chris. I'm happy to do that. And it's too bad that we're celebrating the uh, 30th World AIDS Day that we haven't ended this epidemic, but uh, the number of new infections are, in fact, declining uh, markedly throughout the world, which is very good news. In terms of the life cycle of HIV, HIV binds to the cell surface, micro-injects its RNA genome into the cytoplasm of the cell, and then converts that RNA into DNA, a double-stranded version of the DNA, hence the name retrovirus, reverse flow of genetic information. The DNA is then integrated into our own chromosomes. The DNA is then expressed into new proteins and RNA, which is packaged into new virions, which bud from the cell and start the entire infection process over again. And the cells that are targeted are white blood cells. They're CD4. They carry that marker on their surface, T cells, without which the immune system can't function properly. So one logical conclusion is the virus infects the very cells that orchestrate the immune response. So if you damage them then the immune system is harmed. Correct. Well, the, the real question is, how are these CD4 T cells dying? It was quite clear that the number of cells productively infected with HIV could not explain, in other words, direct killing could not explain the massive CD4 T cell loss that occurs during HIV infection. Uh, then a theory was advanced that it's not the directly infected cells, but it's cells surrounding the infected cell, bystander cells that are dying. Our study now shows for the first time that, in fact, it is these bystander cells which are the principal cause of CD4 T-cell loss, but they themselves are becoming infected, but in an abortive manner, an incomplete infection that arrests uh, early after the virus uh, begins the reverse transcription process. How did you do this work? How did you prove that? Well, the, the first key was to use a primary lymphoid tissue. We used tonsil. And in this tissue, we were then able to use each of the different types of new HIV drugs that interfere with precise steps in the viral life cycle. We were able to interrupt the life cycle with these drugs and ask whether or not CD4 T cell killing was blocked or not. Ingenious. So by 
adding a different drug that works on a different aspect of the life cycle. You interrupt at that stage, see if the cell dies. If it doesn't die, that tells you that the effect of that you're seeing the bystander death in a, an infected patient must lie downstream of that blockade. If the cell does die, it's upstream of where the drug works, and that confines the bit of the viral life cycle that must be doing the damage. Right. We were able to narrow in the death window, as we called it, to a step during the reverse transcription process whereby the uh, DNA is elongated into a, uh, a chain longer than 150 base pairs. One of the real surprises in our study was it's not the virus that's causing the CD4 T cells to die, but rather it's the host cell's response to the uh, occurrence or to the accumulation of cytoplasmic DNA in the, in the cell cytoplasm. Uh, that's what triggers a, a defensive response in the cell in an attempt to protect the host, the CD4 T cell commits suicide. So this is something we've acquired through evolution to defend us against viral attack, cells that sense this cytoplasmic DNA, genetic material in the cell where it shouldn't be, tells the cell, I'm infected with a virus, I'll kill myself to protect the rest of the body. Unfortunately, when you've got the scale of infection going on like you have with HIV, this has deleterious effects then. Right. And the other twist to the story that was a real surprise was that these cells do not die silently, uh, but rather they are dying a fiery death with the release of what's called pyrotosis, which is the release of inflammatory cytokines. The entire cellular contents of the cell are dumped, which increases the inflammatory response. And we now know that there is a close relationship between HIV and inflammation, that these two go hand in hand, uh, dictating disease progression. And what is the implication of this, just to finish us up? Um, does this mean that we're now closer to understanding how to intervene in the viral life cycle better so people who are infected with HIV don't lose all their immune cells in this way? Well, one of the great uh, milestones in modern medicine is the creation of a panoply of antiretroviral drugs, 26 uh, uh, FDA-approved uh, drugs for HIV therapy at last count. All of these drugs can interfere with this death pathway. However, the new link to inflammation and death with inflammation now allows us to explore the possibility of removing that inflammatory component, which might allow the virus to grow in a non-pathogenic uh, way. This might be important for certain clinical settings. Let's hope so. Warner, thank you very much. That's Warner Green, who is Professor of Medicine Microbiolo Microbiology and immunology at the University of California, San Francisco. Diana. It's fascinating stuff. Well, also this week, researchers in Massachusetts have discovered that the ability of our brains to determine whether a human face is male or female is affected by where in the field of view they appear. So, for example, a typically male face in the centre of our vision might be interpreted as a female face when it appears left of centre. In the real world, this isn't usually a problem because we have so many other cues about the gender of a face's owner. So features like hair, clothing and body shape can all contribute to our conclusion as to whether a person is male or female. So the researchers removed all of these extra cues and used computer-generated faces, which made a spectrum of very male to very female. 
And these faces were shown in random, um, in random order to study participants, of which there are 11. Arish, Afraz and colleagues ensured that each face was displayed for 50 milliseconds, not very long, and that the subjects kept their gaze fixed on the centre of the screen. Now, the subjects were asked to assign a gender to each face. And what they found was that while gender judgments were consistent for those faces in the centre of the visual field, those faces lying off-centre received different judgments. And the tendency of each subject to judge an off-centre face as male or female seemed to be specific to the subject. So what Afraz thinks this means is that it comes down to how our visual cortex is organised. Now, the visual cortex is the part of the brain that interprets images, and inside it, cells are grouped according to the part of the visual field that they interpret. So Afraz's conclusion is that the visual cortex has a limited number of neurons per visual field area that it uses to assign gender. So if the image is small and is interpreted by one part of the visual cortex, it can come to a different conclusion than another part might make. And that work is published in Current Biology. That's fascinating. It reminds me of a paper we, uh, we discussed that was published a couple of years ago in which uh, researchers did a similar experiment but asked people to assign gender to images of individuals coming towards them or away from them. And when the individual was coming towards them, people were more likely to rate the individual approaching them as male and when they were going away, they were more likely to say, I think it's female. And from an evolutionary standpoint, you could argue that if a male is coming towards you, they might be more aggressive and therefore more likely to attack you. So it's better to make an error in terms of assigning male gender to an approaching adversary or potential adversary. In the case of a receding figure, that might be your mother who nurtures you wandering off, so you need to follow her. And that was the argument they gave. And it was about two years ago. But it's sort of similar, isn't it? It's sort of making sure you make the, the right accident in the right direction to defend yourself. Yeah, but this is interesting because this didn't seem to, to give any evolutionary advantage at all because people were only making the different decisions um, according to how their brains were organised as far as, far as the research seems to show. So what do you think the reason is then? I have absolutely no idea. But it's interesting. <laughs> Dave. Now, NASA has found a moon with a mostly oxygen atmosphere. Now, one of the unusual things about the Earth is, of course, it's got a lot of oxygen in its atmosphere, which isn't stable, um, and it's only there because plants keep producing it, so everyone's looking for planets with an oxygen atmosphere. Now, the Cassini probe was orbiting Saturn, and it's discovered that the Saturn's moon's rear has an atmosphere which is 70% oxygen and 30% carbon dioxide. Unfortunately, this doesn't mean that Captain Kirk could beam down there and be comfortable in his polyester jumpsuit. And it doesn't indicate there's any life down there happily photosynthesizing. Rear surface is made of water ice at minus 180 degrees centigrade. So Captain Kirk would be a problem for a start. And it's getting irradiated by particles of solar wind trapped by the Saturn's magnetic field all the time. This breaks up water water um, releasing oxygen which is then forming this atmosphere um, there's also a bit of carbon dioxide being released possibly from deeper within the moon as it gets warmed up by tidal effects or something and whilst the atmosphere is about 100 kilometers thick there's still only a few tons of oxygen spread out over the whole moon which if it was on earth would fill a reasonably large building so it's incredibly tenuous so captain kirk would be not in a good state either because he'd just be um, running out of oxygen so are they arguing then we have to be careful when we're looking for oxygen because we've got very precise and accurate sampling measures that, that there are other ways that oxygen could could occur and it might just be a misleading signal i mean i think this one you certainly wouldn't um pick up as a misleading signal because if it's so tenuous you probably wouldn't even notice it if you weren't actually see it. no one had noticed it up till now and that they noticed it because the um cassini probe went really close but there could be all sorts of other chemistry which we haven't even considered which could confuse any idea whether there's life out there already life not as we know it then
Dave, thanks very much. So if you'd like to read up a bit more about anything that we've covered this week, the references and there will be transcripts to all of those news stories that we've been discussing online, you can find them at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.